Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, this is Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the IASLC. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. Today, we will discuss the recent FDA approval of first-line amivantamab plus chemotherapy for non-small cell lung cancer harboring an EGFR exon 20 insertion. This approval based on the Phase 3 Papillon trial with data first shared in 2023 at ESMO in Madrid, a simultaneous publication in the New England Journal of Medicine. To discuss this now FDA-approved regimen, I'm joined by two thoracic medical oncologists with expertise in this space. First, from the University of Michigan, where she is a clinical assistant professor and co-chair of the thoracic clinical research team at the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center, Dr. Angel Chin. Angel, thank you for being our guest today. Thank you, Stephen. I'm also joined by Dr. Michael Boyer, Professor and Camling Barbara Lowe Chair in Lung and Thoracic Cancer at the University of Sydney and CEO of the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse, a comprehensive cancer center in Sydney, Australia. Michael, thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Stephen, for the opportunity. You know, I think most listeners have heard of EGFR mutations and lung cancer. The identification of sensitizing EGFR mutations played a central role in the development of the whole targeted therapy paradigm. Our focus today, though, is on a very specific subtype of EGFR mutation. Uh, Michael, just to get us started, could you provide a little background for the listeners on EGFR exon 20 insertion mutations? Sure. You know, I think everybody's pretty familiar with the idea of uh, EGFR mutations in lung cancer and the common mutations that, that we typically see, the exon 19 deletions and L858R mutations. Those account for some 80-odd percent of the mutations. The third most common mutation, however, or it's really a group of mutations, are exon 20 insertions. And they account for around about 10 to 12 percent of all the EGFR mutations. Now, the thing that makes them interesting is, firstly, it's a large group. There's, There's actually over 100 different types of exon 20 insertions. And secondly, even though they are activating mutations, they don't actually respond to the traditional treatments we use to treat EGFR-mutated lung cancer. That's because the mutation itself, uh, which occurs near the kinase domain, sterically hinders the ability of most of our tyrosine kinases to actually bind to the active site. And so instead of the the sort of typical responses that we're used to seeing, there are response rates of sort of somewhere between zero and 20% when we use those typical drugs to treat EGFR exon 20 insertions. Angel, does everyone with non-small cell lung cancer get tested for EGFR exon 20 insertions? I think that's a really great question, Stephen. I think the question is everyone should get tested for EGFR exon 20 insertions given the data that you know already have with uh, second-line treatment. And now we're here to talk about you know approval of chemotherapy and amivantamab. But I, I don't think everyone does. I think we have plenty of data that has been presented at various meetings that shows that, unfortunately, the uptake of comprehensive uh, sequencing is still relatively low compared to what we would like to see for lung cancer. 
even in stage four, where we have so many approved different targeted therapies. I think the other concern of mine when we look at uh, testing for EGFR is that I still do still see some panels that are very focused in terms of what they test. So the EGFR, they're only looking at, you know, exon 21 L85AR or uh, exon 19 deletions are sensitizing EGFR mutations. And in that instance, we could potentially mix the uh, EGFR exon 20 insertion. Michael, anything to add from a, a testing standpoint for EGFR exon 20? I think it's important to understand that not all testing methodologies yield the same results. So when you use PCR-based testing to, to look for things like EGFR mutations, you, you really discover or identify a limited array of those mutations. And in the case of exon 20 insertions, we know that most of the PCR-based platforms will only identify about half of the uh, exon 20 insertion. So really, if you want to identify these, you, you are going to need to use next generation sequencing as the testing methodology. I mean, it's really important to find these when they're here. Michael, I think you really expertly defined why it's important to identify these mutations, and also why it's been such a challenging subtype to treat. You know, these traditional TKIs, as you said, not very effective, but immunotherapy also not effective. So really, we've been left with chemotherapy alone. Despite all the advances in the past 10 years, this subset really hasn't benefited from those. But we did finally get targeted therapy approved a few years ago. The first targeted agent approved for EGFR exon 20 insertion non-small cell lung cancer was not a TKI. It was the bispecific antibody amivantamab. Now, this approval was in the previously treated setting, so not as first-line initial therapy, and it was based on the Chrysalis trial. Uh, Angel, can you maybe briefly review the outcomes, the efficacy that led to that initial FDA-accelerated approval of amivantamab in May 2021? Yes, absolutely. So Chrysalis was a phase one uh, study that included multiple cohorts. But of course, the cohort we were interested in is the EGFR exon 20 insertion cohort. Uh, that had about 81 patients. And as you mentioned, Stephen, they were previously treated uh, with the median number of prior therapies of two, but ranging from one to seven. Here, they demonstrate an impressive overall response rate of 40% with a median progression-free survival of 8.3 months. And I think based on that pretty impressive uh, data, this is why Emivantamab received approval for second-line treatment. I will note that the authors did find a median overall survival of 22.8 months, but the data was rather immature when that was published. Now, as you mentioned, that initial approval, previously treated setting, so after initial chemotherapy, this new approval is in the first line setting. And that's based on the Papillon trial. We saw those data in Madrid uh, from our colleague, Dr. Antonio Pissarro at ESMO 2023, simultaneous publication by Dr. Joe in the New England Journal of Medicine. Michael, you're a co-author and investigator on the study. Could you describe the design of Papillon? The design of Papillon is a fairly uh, simple one. It is a randomized phase three trial that aims to compare the outcomes of amivantamab plus chemotherapy to that of chemotherapy alone. So the population that was studied was a population of previously untreated metastatic or locally advanced non-small cell. 
And all the patients in this study had to have tumours that contained an EGFR exon 20 insertion. Um, this was tested locally and predominantly based on tissue testing, although uh, serum, uh, plasma testing was allowed as well. And patients were allowed to also have brain metastases, provided they'd been treated and were asymptomatic. So the design randomised patients one-to-one -to, -one to either receive amivantamab plus chemotherapy or chemotherapy alone. And the chemotherapy was very standard, carboplatin plus pemetrexed, given as we would normally uh, give that for advanced non-small cell lung cancer, uh, up to four cycles of carboplatin and pemetrexed continued until the time of progression. The one thing that, that is a little different is how the amivantamab was given. So after an initial run-in period during which amivantamab was given weekly for convenience, given this whole thing was a 21-day regimen, a 21-day cycle, the amivantamab from cycle three onwards was given every 21 days. And, and that's important. There are some subtleties of how the dose changed at that point to take into account the fact that it was being given uh, every three weeks, which is a little different from how it was given in chrysalis. The key endpoints of the study, the primary endpoint of the study, was progression-free survival based on blinded independent central review. And there were a, a, a series of secondary endpoints, as you might expect, things like response rate and overall survival. So overall, a fairly, uh, a fairly simple design. Which I appreciate. I mean, it's, I like the straightforward designs. It also allows you to really isolate what the benefit of adding this drug to our standard treatment is. And, you know, with a straightforward design, we learned this was, this was a really positive trial. Uh, Angel, do you want to discuss the efficacy of amivantamab plus chemotherapy? Yes. So the uh, progression-free survival of the amivantamab and chemotherapy group was 11.4 months compared to 6.7 months with chemotherapy alone. And the overall response rate was 73% with amivantamab and chemotherapy versus 47% in chemotherapy alone. So as you said, Stephen, very striking, impressive results. Michael, your thoughts on efficacy? You know, how did the, the control arm perform? And do you think these results are meaningful? Well, I think the results are really meaningful. I mean, I think this is a strongly positive study with a, with a very significant improvement in progression-free survival. I mean, the hazard ratio is 0 0.40, so, uh, and highly statistically significant. Um, the control arm's interesting. I mean, I think the control arm performed as we might expect. And in fact, you might even argue that the 40-odd the percent response rate in the control arm was even higher than one might expect for this group of patients. And certainly, when you look at other groups of EGFR-mutated lung cancers treated with chemotherapy alone, the um, the survival, the, the progression-free survival that was seen here is in keeping with that. Now, it's obviously always really, really difficult and dangerous to compare this kind of data between trials. These cross-trial comparisons are not good, but, but I don't think there's anything to suggest here that, that the results are due to underperformance of the control arm. So bottom line, I think it's meaningful uh, and I think it's a positive study. I mean, these Kaplan-Meier curves split immediately. They widen over time. It's really, it's really an impressive difference in response rate in PFS, but the flip side of that coin really is safety. So 
Uh, Angel, we, we know this regimen is more effective, clearly more effective, but can you comment on the safety profile of amivantamab? What toxicity does giving amivantamab add to chemotherapy? Yeah, I think, you know, this is where I think some of the concerns may be raised about this regimen. So, you know, for those of us who are familiar with amivantamab, we know about the infusion-related reactions that occur very commonly, rash, edema. So side effects that you expect with, you know, um, blockade of EGFR and MET as amivantamab is designed to do. What surprised me when I looked at the toxicity data for the Papillon study is that some of the toxicity seemed to be compounded when amivantamab was added to chemotherapy, leading me to think that there's actually more interaction than we suspect. So for example, we saw a much higher incidence of actually neutropenia, including grade three or higher neutropenia with the amivantamab chemotherapy uh, combo compared to chemotherapy alone, which, which rather surprised me. And some of the other side effects as well, you know, LFT abnormalities, um, leukopenias, thrombocytopenias were just a, all overall all higher with the amivantamab and chemo group compared to chemo alone. So we see a, a little addition in toxicity. Michael, can you describe you know, your experience with those infusion reactions that Angel described, but also just your experience with amivantamab and chemotherapy in general? Yeah, sure. I mean, the infusion reactions are real and they, they really do occur. You know, in the study, they occurred in 40% or so. And that's even with the things that are done to try and minimize them. So, um, you know, splitting the very first dose across two days is an attempt to reduce those infusion reactions. Giving pre-medication also reduces them. But even with that, they still do occur. Interestingly and, and fortunately, they really only occur with the first and possibly second administration. And um, by the time you get beyond the second dose, it is very, very rare for there to be infusion reactions. So it's a short-lived problem and, you know, in, at least in our experience, not one that, that stops you giving this, this treatment to patients. Um, like Angel, I, I'm also struck by the fact that, that some of the other toxicities are a little more pronounced in the combination treatment. Uh, of course, there's a, a bit of a competing risk thing here because patients who are on the combination have many more cycles or had many more cycles of treatment, so certainly had more opportunity to experience some of those toxicities. But but overall, it's reasonably manageable and, and most patients get through this without, in our experience, without too much of a problem. I should also add one one last thing. Um, I'll just add one last thing to that, and that is to say that there are new formulations, a subcutaneous formulation of amivantamab being developed uh, in an attempt to really minimize and, and effectively eliminate the infusion reactions. Yeah, I look forward to seeing those data in in this context as well. And I think the point about longer exposure is important. It makes us wonder, though, does EGFR play some role in hematopoiesis and maybe some, some role in the bone marrow as well? But fortunately, a lot of those toxicities were low-grade, uh, what we call paper toxicities, not necessarily with clinical consequence. Uh, but there are toxicities with the agent. Angel, what's your experience been 
with toxicity and amivantamab. Um, and do you have any tips from your practice on proactively addressing those adverse events? Yeah, I think these are great questions, Stephen. So, you know, it, it, the New England Journal article that was published actually commented on this as well, but they actually noted a lower incidence of rash and uh, infusion-related reactions with the chemo uh, amivantamab group than what they had seen in the chrysalis study. And, and the authors did comment that perhaps, you know, with pemetrexid, we commonly use dexamethasone pre-medications and might that have, you know, resulted in lower rates of infusion-related reactions and rash. And um, as Dr. Boyer mentioned, there are other ongoing studies looking at ways to mitigate some of these toxicities. You know, I think in my personal experience with amivantamab, it, it, it can be challenging. Absolutely, the infusion-related reactions are very real and patients are, are do experience significant distress when it occurs. My practice has to been really to warn the patients, you know, letting them know it's going to happen, but that it'll be short-lived and that we give them pre-medications to really help mitigate these. And I find that just a warning patients about this, they, they're immediately relieved because when it does occur, they know it's not something that's terrible. I do struggle sometimes with a rash that's um, can be seen with amivantamab, and I do think that's the EGFR side effects of, of the amivantamab. It, it seems to be a lot more uh, persistent than now what we're probably used to with some of our third-generation EGFR TKIs. But again, really good counseling, being proactive. You know, I usually send patients scripts ready for steroids, both topical and sometimes oral, you know, um, uh, doxycycline perhaps if needed. So a lot of education, I think, is what is needed to help patients uh, kind of get through some of these side effects. I, I couldn't agree more. So, I mean, for me, it really is that proactive management of the rash, uh, of the dryness, and the infusion reactions, while they they are, like you said, they are real, to me, it, I tell patients, you know, expect it to happen. In most patients, it's happened. But it's unlike allergic-type reactions, it's not something that's going to keep happening. Really, like Michael said, it's really that first dose and then doesn't happen again. Uh, to me, it's not really a big barrier. Exactly as you do, I prep patients for it. But also prepping the nurses for it, saying, look, expect this to happen. Here's what we do. Uh, if we can't tolerate it, we, we bag it, move on to day two. Shouldn't be a problem going forward unless there's a big break in therapy, in which case we'll often sort of split that first dose again. Uh, so I have a very similar approach in, in my practice, my experience mostly in that second line setting. But now that we have this available in the front line setting, Angel, let me just ask you directly, front line, amivantamide plus chemotherapy based on Papillon with the FDA approval in the U.S., is this the new standard of care? You know, I think it definitely should be considered a new standard of care. And I say a new standard of care instead of the new standard of care. Uh, not that, you know, because the data isn't impressive, which it certainly is, as we've heard throughout this podcast. But my hesitation here lies really in some of the toxicity um, with the combination uh, despite the fact that we can manage it. And I, I do get concerned about now the lack of a targeted second line. So, you know, prior to this, we had amivantamab approving the second line. We also had mobocertinib that's been discontinued. So now when I think about these patients who progress on frontline chemo amivantamab, 
you know, what our options are left are, are perhaps standard of care chemo like docetaxel or, or maybe another clinical trial. So it does leave me a little uncomfortable to not have, you know, a great next line uh, agent available. And, you know, on the study itself, they did allow patients who had received chemotherapy when they progressed to cross over to amivantamab, which is wonderful and, and the appropriate design to do. And in that situation, again, patients demonstrated a very similar uh, response and progression-free survival uh, compared to what we saw in the chrysalis study. So, you know, I know, you know, a statistician would, would probably kill me for saying this, but when you look at the PFS together of frontline chemo and cycline amivantamab sequentially versus, you know, uh, the PFS of the combination, there doesn't seem to be that big of a change. So, you know, I think this is where my slight hesitation um, lies. It absolutely should be considered a standard of care. And I think part of this decision is going to be discussion with the patients, uh, you know, about some of the added toxicity, added infusions, things like that. But absolutely should be considered for every patient who has EGFR exon 20 insertion, non-small cell lung cancer. I think those are all good points. I mean, it's a pretty impressive PFS hazard ratio, right? We yes, certainly, absolutely. I mean, we've changed our, our standard of care for a lot less. And, you know, I agree that we need more drugs in this space and the loss of mobocertinib is, is one that I, I do mourn a bit. But you know, I think we've got some exciting drugs coming up soon and hopefully development will continue at this really breakneck speed. But but to me, this this is really, they really are impressive results. Definitely worth discussing with patients. Michael, when this is available in Australia, do you think this approach is appropriate for all patients with EGFR exon 20 non-small cell lung cancer? Basically, yes. I mean, you know, I, the points that Angel made, I think, are all very good ones. Ultimately, in terms of the timing of the addition of amivantamab, you know, the thing that's going to really give us the data is the overall survival results from the Papillon study. That data or those data are immature at the moment, but but you know, in the coming years, we will see that, and that will address the question of um, the crossover and those sorts of things. My hunch is that there will be an overall survival advantage, but we just need to wait and wait and see. As to whether it's for all patients, I, I think that it's really going to involve a discussion with individual patients because you're trading off um, survival, whether that be progression or progression-free or ultimately overall survival with toxicity immediately. And each patient will have their own perspective on that. But my hunch is that most patients would, would accept the toxicity. Angel, uh, I want to come back to something Michael said earlier. Um, Michael mentioned a subcutaneous formulation of amivantamab. So the FDA-approved formulation is the IV dosing, but there is a subcutaneous formulation. We've seen a little bit of data come out on that. What impact would that have, the sub-Q formulation, what impact would that have on accessibility, on delivery? Yeah, so I actually fortunately have a little bit of experience with the sub-Q formulation of amivantamab as we participated in a different study um, in common EGFR mutations, and uh, patients of mine did get uh, the sub-Q formulation. I think absolutely, you know, the uh, omission, if you will, of infusion-related reactions is key. The drastic reduction in time is impressive, you know, especially with the first day or first dose, if you will, being a split dose between days one and two. And these are rather long days, given that we start very slowly. You know, I think that is is quite impressive that the 
with a sub-Q formulation, you don't have that. I think that would dramatically improve our ability to deliver this drug and also access to this drug, right? If you're thinking about uh, maybe a small community center or, or catchment hospital where they may not have that luxury of having a lot of chair time, uh, being able to give someone a sub-Q injection, I think is certainly preferred to a long IV infusion. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, you know, chair time is is valuable. It's sometimes tough to schedule patients uh, and that can lead to delays in care. Uh, so I think that that's a, a huge point not to be overlooked. And, you know, we, we hear so much about immunotherapy for non-small cell lung cancer and you know, rightfully so. It, it's really a transformative class of medications, but we know it's not appropriate in some subtypes of non-small cell lung cancer. Angel, what role does immunotherapy play for an EGFRX on 20 non-small cell lung cancer? I think we all have a clinical sense that uh, EGFRX on 20 mutations may or behave similarly to their common EGFR partners and that there really is no benefit to immunotherapy. But I had to dig for some data on that. Now, as Michael mentioned uh, early on in this podcast, these are relatively rare mutations. And so we don't have that much or any good perspective data that I could find about immunotherapy in this population. But there are, you know, quite a bit of retrospective data published um, from chart reviews from large uh, health databases, both here in China, where they have maybe a higher uh, incidence of EGFRX on 20 insertion mutations. And, and based on all that data, I really can't say that we see that immunotherapy adds much to chemotherapy for EGFRX on 20 insertion mutations. What I found in the literature review is that maybe response rates can be a little bit higher with the chemoimmunotherapy compared to chemo alone, but that did not translate at all into a difference in PFS or OS. And of course, we know that immunotherapy is not without its share of toxicities as well. So, you know, I think outside of a clinical trial setting, um, it's really hard for me to say that there's a indication for immunotherapy routinely for EGFRX on 20 non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, Michael, do you agree? What are your thoughts on immunotherapy for EGFRX on 20? Yes, basically I agree. I, I think that, that it plays a small role and, and I certainly wouldn't regard it as part of the standard therapy, certainly not the standard first-line therapy for these patients. And, you know, that that's pretty much in keeping with EGFR mutation, um, mutated lung cancers more generally. It's not really a, a major part because the data really don't support any additional benefit. You know, one thing is that we know when we give immunotherapy before EGFR TKIs, it seems to make those TKIs more toxic. That doesn't seem, I guess we don't know, but it doesn't seem to be the case with a biospecific antibody like imivantamab. But looking ahead, you know, presumably there will come a time when there are TKIs available here. And I think immunotherapy might compromise our ability to give those drugs safely. For, you know, for, for me, really immunotherapy doesn't play a role here. I, I just don't think these are immune responsive, at least not the currently available immunotherapy. And Angel, like you said, you know, if you're going to give immunotherapy, I think it really should be in a clinical trial. It's got to be something a little more novel. Uh, a little different. Um, you know, this is a field that's moving so quickly. We have so many new drugs coming along, but we're grateful for this approval. There's a lot more thing we could touch on, but we, we do have to close this episode. So let me end here. Uh, I really want to thank you both for coming. I know you're incredibly busy. Uh, and, and with this 
recent update. We really wanted to get some information out there. But, you know, Michael, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thanks very much, Stephen. And, and Angel, you as well. Thanks so much for being a guest here and for all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Stephen. It was my pleasure. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and from our website, IASLC.org, under Newsroom. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 